Welcome to the GDPR Weekly Show, one of the top five GDPR podcasts worldwide. Here is what's coming up in this week's episode. So coming up in episode 113 of the GDPR Weekly Show, and we have a bumper episode for you this week. We are almost an hour long, which I think the longest episode of the GDPR Weekly Show we've recorded since our inception. But there's just so much activity in the world of GDPR to bring you this week. We begin with an update on NHS QR codes and COVID-19 data collection and retention. And then also, whilst we're on the subject of COVID-19, we look at the man from Wick in Scotland who is not satisfied with the results of his Freedom of Information request, which he submitted to NHS Highlands. We then leave COVID-19 and move away to... British Airways, and we look at news that British Airways' £183 million GDPR data breach penalty has been reduced by the ICO down to £20 million, largely as a result of the turmoil caused to the travel industry by COVID-19. We then cross to Belgium, where the Belgian DPA has found the IAB Code of Practice for Behavioural Advertising falling short of GDPR requirements. We then return to the UK where your lawyers have filed class action papers against Virgin Media for their data breach which they suffered earlier this year. And we then have an update on the data breach at Carnival Cruises. And we then cross to Ireland where the DPC has announced that their ruling on the Twitter data breach is unlikely to be concluded until sometime in 2021. We then return to the UK to bring you news of a significant data breach at the London Borough of Hackney. And we then return to Scotland, where Flintshire Council could face legal action following a data breach of responses to their planning local plan consultation. We then travel to Malta, where after a data breach affecting 75% of the Maltese population, there is now a court case beginning. And we then have news that the Communication Workers' Union, the CWU, has appointed Kauna Lechner to act as their data breach advisors. And then we have news from the German courts, where the German courts have ruled on the whole concept of non-material damages after a data breach. And I think you'll find that a very interesting article, because it clearly shows the difficulties in determining quite when non-material damage has been suffered, and what the recompense for that suffering should be. We then return to the UK where the ICO has issued guidance on how it intends to determine GDPR penalties. And then in response to requests to our help desk, we have put together an article for you with some guidance on GDPR for IT freelance contractors. And then finally this week, we have the results of an XNR survey into the reasons for GDPR penalties. So plenty in this week's bumper edition of the GDPR Weekly Show. We hope you find the articles useful and informative. And as always, if you have any feedback for us, please just email us at feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com. We do read every single piece of feedback, but unfortunately due to the volume of feedback we receive, we're not always possible to reply to each piece of feedback individually. But please be sure we do take all your feedback into account when we're planning future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. This is an important coronavirus update. Stay home. Protect our NHS. With the three-tier system already in place and with seemingly increasing numbers of people suffering from COVID-19 nationwide and indeed the imposition of various local lockdowns, 
We begin this week with a reminder of the responsibility of any premises where people are served, but particularly hospitality services or beauty services, of the requirement to keep details of the people visiting your establishment and the need to display the NHS QR code in your window or door prominently near to where most people enter your premises. If you have more than one entrance, you should have the QR code displayed beside each entrance so that people can easily scan the QR code with their app so that their presence is registered with NHS Test and Trace. Just a reminder that it is actually a offence not to display the QR code and indeed we're aware of at least one premises locally which was served a fixed penalty notice this week for £1,000 simply for not displaying the QR code, even though they were complying with every other part of the requirement of collecting data to satisfy child ID19. So please do make sure you print off those QR codes and that you display them in your premises. There have been questions about whether the data held in the NHS app is truly anonymized. And some have argued that, well, because you can tell the registration number back to the details on the phone, and then in theory you should find out who owned or registered the phone, then you should identify a person from that information. In reality, we and the NHS do not believe that anyone is going to go to that level to do that. Because it's important to remember as well that the NHS app does not remember your precise address. It only remembers your postcode, which in most parts of the UK would tie you down to only a dozen or so properties. So when you install the app, the app assigns an installation ID to your phone as a user of the app. Running your Bluetooth with your consent in the background to scan your surroundings looking for any other phones with NHS app Bluetooth signals. When your app picks up another nearby app user, this interaction is logged in the NHS tracking database. If you or one of the other people later test positive with COVID, a notification will be sent to all of those apps you interacted with to tell them they may be at risk. Now, in previous episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show, we've mentioned that the project did not undergo a full data protection impact assessment, DPIA, before its public use, which technically under GDPR it should have done, but it was recognised that because of the extreme circumstances of COVID, that it would be allowed to be put into use without the DPIA being completed. The DPIA, however, has now been completed and reports that personal data is collected anonymously through the app to aid with the tracking of coronavirus cases. However, Michael Veal of the University College London has queried this, stating that the information stored by the NHS database is pseudonym instead, i.e. they use a different but not an anonymous way of identifying you. Although on the database an app user is only identified by their unique ID- installation ID, it's technically true that this reference number could be traced back to a particular phone or device of which you will be likely to be the registered owner, either as the contract holder or the phone number holder. Now, the use of pseudonyms, by its very nature, always puts you just one step away from identifying the true individual. But the view of the ICO, and we would fully support this view, is in this case, you would need more information than just the installation ID to be able to identify an individual. I say particularly since when you register you only register to a postcode. If you have people who aren't using the app, then the venue is required to collect people's information. And the information that they tend to collect from at least one member of the party is their name, their full address, their phone number, their email address, and how many people were in their party. Now, many cafes, restaurants, etc. are collecting this data 
buy good old pen and paper. And that's fine. There is no problem with that. But we would strongly suggest you should not really have a list of people on a clipboard, for example. You should have a separate page, a separate form for each person coming in who perhaps then hands that form to one of your members of staff who then takes it and stores it somewhere securely that you've agreed to store it. Because the problem with keeping all the data on a list on a clipboard is that anyone else coming to sign afterwards can see who's already signed in and who's already in the premises and they have absolutely no right to do that. And of course also in these days of smartphones it's not beyond the realms of probability that someone could decide to take photographs of those pages of the forms and suddenly, hey, they've gained the address, telephone number and contact details of maybe up to 40 people. And that technically would be a data breach and that could land your venue in trouble. So please do not correct data by pen and paper on just a list that's available to the public. Either make it a list that's kept behind your counter and you actually write the details into the form without the member of the public being able to see the form or perhaps simpler is to use a separate piece of paper a separate form for each person a reminder too that once you've got that information you are under an obligation to store the data securely and only for as long as necessary so you should really have a lockable box or safe that you put those forms in you need to keep the details for 21 days in case the, your establishment is linked to a positive top ID test and needs to notify anyone who's been in contact before being securely destroyed. Again, that doesn't mean just taking them out of the box and throwing them in the bin. It means using a cross-cut shredder to destroy the documents securely before you put the forms out for disposal. If you hold the details digitally, you should also make sure that you delete those details after 21 days. What you can't do in any way is use that data for marketing. It is solely for one use, it's for the use of NHS Test and Trace, and so it must be kept solely for that purpose, and 21 days after you collected it, it must be securely destroyed, and that is really, really important. If you do not follow those simple instructions, you may find yourself with a fixed penalty of £1,000 against your premises. And in these difficult times when many organisations and premises I know are struggling for turnover, then you want to avoid a £1,000 penalty that you don't need to have leverage on you if you just follow some simple steps. As always, if anything we've said is not clear, then don't hesitate to email us at helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com and one of our specialists would be delighted to get back in touch with you and give you some help. Wash your hands, keep your social distance, wear your mask, stay safe. Keith Banks from Wick in Scotland who made a Freedom of Information request about COVID-19 numbers in Caithness, has described a response from NHS Highland as patronising and unsatisfactory. Freedom of Information legislation gives members of the public the right to ask to see recorded information held by public authorities. And in many ways now, it's effectively the same as GDPR in terms of personal data, in terms of the person's right to request that data. Mr Banks lodged his request that he wanted to know the precise numbers of people in Caithness who had tested positive and also how many in the county had died as a result of coronavirus. The response from NHS Highlands Freedom of Information team, dated 2nd of October, gave details for the period between the 1st of March and the 23rd of August. It said fewer than 15 positive cases of COVID-19 with a Caithness postcode during that time scale had been identified. 
It also said that there had been fewer than 10 deaths mentioned in COVID-19 on death in case nests in the same date range. The response continued that due to the low number of patients involved, no further specific information could be given because information released could possibly identify explicitly or inexplicitly any individual. NHS Highland said that adding the information being sought by Mr Banks constituted personal data, disclosure of which would contravene the principles of data protection. This, the House Board said, would make the information exempt in terms of Section 38.1b of the Freedom of Information Scotland Act 2002. Mr Banks argues that he's not requested any information, either directly or in oblique terms, that can be deemed personal information about any individual or individuals. He argues that it's not competent to rely on Section 38.1b of the Freedom of Information Act. He goes on to assert that none of the principles set out in General Data Protection Regulation, GDPR, covering data protection and privacy in the EU would be breached. Mr Banks said, in common with just about everyone else, I'd like to know what were the precise numbers of people in case nests who have tested positive and how many people in case nests have died as a consequence of COVID-19. I'm not satisfied with the response from NHS Highland. They haven't proved their information and what they provided is not helpful and reassuring to the public in a health crisis. Indeed, if anything, their response fuels anxiety within the community. NHS Highland is behaving like a nanny knows best, and as a member of the public, I consider their attitude to be patronising and offensive. The response they provided certainly is not transparent. I describe it as betraying a culture driven by elusiveness and evasiveness. The rationale for keeping the public pretty much in the dark over why the exact number revealed needs to be explained. Regrettably, NHS Highland appears to be unwilling to be honest with the public. The public should be empowered and entitled to make informed choices about their health and wellbeing during the pandemic. I believe NHS England would show some respect for the public interest and reveal the precise figures. Mr Banks said that if his request for review is turned down, he will appeal the case to the Scottish Information Commissioner. In the meantime, he's lodged a further Freedom of Information request with NHS Highland, asking for the precise number of cases diagnosed in case nests, together with the number of deaths attributed to COVID-19 in the county between August 24th and October 7th. For NHS Highland, Dr Tim Allison said... We can understand why there may be concern among local communities about the possibility of COVID 19 being in the area. However, we are not commenting on the presence of individual community cases. Numbers on confirmed cases of COVID 19 are released by the Scottish Government and these are broken down to local authority areas. There's also further information on areas both at local authority level at a smaller locality level available via Public Health Scotland dashboard. We know that positive cases and rumours of positive cases can cause local anxiety in the community. Please be reassured that where positive cases are identified, our health protection team undertake follow-up, including contact tracing with the case and issue appropriate advice and guidance to the relevant individuals and organisations. There is evidence of increasing transmission of COVID-19 across Scotland. COVID-19 is still here and it's important that everyone takes responsibility and follows national guidance to keep them and others safe. Dr Harrison went on to say, Everyone in Highland, Argyle and Butte has a role to play to keep the number of positive cases as low as possible. Anyone with symptoms of coronavirus should be tested. You can book a test for yourself, someone you care for or a child in your care. To be tested, you or your household member should be displaying symptoms such as a new continuous cough, fever or loss of or change in sense of smell and taste. More information can be found on the NHS Inform website. And now, the rest of this week's news. If you're a regular listener to the GDPR Weekly Show, you might remember that back in episode 5, 
We first brought you news of the data breach of British Airways of the details of nearly 400,000 of their customers. And we've followed the case with interest since to the level a while ago now when the ICO concluded its investigation and said that it intended to fine British Airways a penalty of £183 million for its errors in handling the data breach. However, British Airways always intended to appeal that figure and this week the Information Commissioner announced that it's fined British Airways £20 million for failing to protect the personal financial details of its customers. The ICO acknowledged that BA had acted quickly and appropriately once the breach had been discovered. However, British Airways ought to have identified and resolved the security measures as part of its general compliance and had it done so, an attack of this type could have been avoided. The ICO rejected British Airways' argument that the attackers were primarily responsible for the breaches as the breaches related to British Airways' failure to comply with its obligations to put in place appropriate security measures. The deficiencies in BA systems had clearly been present for some time and the ICO considered that British Airways had failed to meet several key obligations, including the use of privacy by design. This is a serious reminder of the importance of having robust compliance and review measures in place to ensure systems are up to date and not waiting to respond to a breach. The £20 million fine is of course substantially less than the £183 million penalty which was originally imposed on British Airways. However, the ICO, like everyone, has been had to take into account the effects of COVID-19, especially the effects of COVID-19 on the travel industry and therefore on British Airways' ability to pay. Because whilst the ICO wants obviously to levy a penalty which makes everyone sit up and take notice, at the same time it wouldn't be in anyone's interest for the ICO to be responsible for actually putting British Airways out of business. Of course, all eyes now turn on the Marriott International fine, which has been originally set by the ICO at £99 million. Now we know that Marriott Hotels have already launched an appeal against that figure and doubtless they will now look to be using the new British Airways figure of £20 million as a benchmark. But let's not forget, let's be real, in anyone's books £20 million is still a substantial penalty. In a statement, Elizabeth Denham, the Information Commissioner, said when organisations take poor decisions around people's personal data, that can have a real impact on people's lives. The law now gives us the tools to encourage businesses to make better decisions about data, including investing in up-to-date security. Like most of the GDPR community, we've been keeping a careful eye on the Belgian DPA's investigation into the IAB Europe code for consent for behavioural advertising. The Belgian DPA's investigation follows complaints against the use of personal data in the real-time bidding component of programmatic advertising, which contend that the system of high-velocity personal data trading is inherently incompatible with the data security requirements of EU law. The IAB Europe's transparency and consent framework can be seen popping up all over the regional web, asking users to accept or reject ad trackers, with the stated aim of helping publishers comply with the EU data protection rules. This has been the IAB's response to the introduction of GDPR across the EU. The GDPR, by its introduction, tightened standards around consent to process personal data and introduced supersized penalties for non-compliance, as indeed we were just discussing in the previous article regarding British Airways. But in terms of programmatic advertising, GDPR has really cranked up the legal risk for the programmatic advertising industry. The IAB Europe introduced its code in 2018, just before GDPR, 
saying at the time that it would help the digital advertising ecosystem comply with obligations under GDPR and the Privacy Directive. The framework has been widely adopted, including Google, for example, which integrated it in August this year. Outside of Europe, the IAB has also recently been pushing for a version of the same tool to be used for compliance with California's Consumer Privacy Act, the CCPA. However, the findings by the Investigatory Division of the Belgian DPA cast doubt on all that adoption, suggesting the framework is not fit for purpose. The Inspection Service of the Belgian DPA has made a number of findings in a report, including that the Transparency and Consent Framework fails to comply with GDPR principles of transparency, fairness and accountability, and also the lawfulness of processing. The Belgian DPA also found that the framework does not provide adequate rules for the processing of special category data, for example, health information, political affiliation, sexual orientation, and yet it does process that data. There are further highly embarrassing findings for the IAB Europe, which the inspector found not to have appointed its own data protection officer, nor to have registered its own internal data processing activities, and its own privacy policy was also found to be wanting. For its part, the IAB has published a statement in which it describes the framework as a voluntary standard that contains a minimal set of best practices. It also says that it respectfully disagrees with the Belgian DPA's apparent interpretation of the law, pursuant to which IAB Europe is a data controller in the context of publishing information of the framework, adding that if upheld, the Belgian DPA's interpretation would have a chilling effect on the development of open source compliance standards that serve to protect in- industry players and protect consumers. A series of complaints against real-time bidding have been filed across Europe over the past two years, starting in the UK and Ireland. Dr Johnny Ryan, who filed the original complaint and is now a senior fellow at the Irish Council for Civil Liberties, said the framework was an attempt by the tracking industry to put a veneer or quasi-legality over the massive data breach at the heart of behavioural advertising and tracking industry and the Belgian DPA is now peeling that veneer off and exposing the illegality. Dr Ryan has previously described these issues as being the greatest data breach ever recorded. Just last month, we brought you news that he had published a dossier of evidence on how extensively and troublingly real-time bidding leaks personal data, with findings including that a data broker used real-time bidding to profile people with the aim of influencing the 2019 Polish parliamentary election by targeting LGBTQ plus people. Another data broker was found to be profiled and targeting the internet users in Ireland under categories including substance abuse, diabetes, chronic pain and sleep disorders. In a statement, Ravi Naik, the solicitor who worked on the original complaints, had this to say on the Belgian's inspectorate's findings. These findings are damning and overdue. As the standard setters, the IAB is responsible for breaches of the GDPR. Their supervisory authority has rightly found that the IAB neglects the risk to data subjects. The IAB's responsibility now is to stop these breaches. Here in the UK, the ICO issued a warning about behavioural advertising in June 2019, urging the industry to take note of the need to comply with data protection standards. However, the ICO has failed to follow up with any enforcement action unless you count multiple mildly worded blog posts. At the moment, the ICO investigation into uh, behavioural advertising is on pause due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Ireland's DPC has also opened an investigation into Google's online ad exchange, looking into the lawful basis for its processing of personal data, but that remains open on the desk. And of course, we know, and indeed you have heard us say in previous episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show, that the Irish Data Protection Commissioner has 
a very substantial workload simply due to the number of organisations and companies who choose to have Ireland as their EU base. There are still several steps to go before the Belgian DPA takes to there are several steps to go before the Belgian DPA takes any action on the substance of its report, with a number of steps outstanding in the regulatory process. But per the complaint, the inspectorate's findings have been forwarded to the litigation chamber and action is expected in early 2021, which suggests that privacy watchers in the EU might finally get to uphold their rights against the ad tracking industry in the near future. There's a message here for publishers, which is the need to change how they monetize their content. Rights respecting alternatives to contextual ads are available, and some publishers have already found the switch to contextual ads to be a good news story for their revenue. As this case progresses, and it looks likely the next steps will probably be in the early months of 2021, we will of course bring you updates in future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. What's up, Isabella? I'm fed up. I wish I had a new job. Have you tried Jubal? Jubal Jubal.org. We help people find jobs. Great. I will try it now. We have an update on another long-running story this week. Back in episode 81, we brought you details of a data breach at Virgin Media. And this week, it's been announced that consumer action law firm Your Lawyers has announced a group action claim against Virgin Media. Your lawyers said they've given Virgin Media weeks to agree to resolution terms and avoid court action. They say early estimates indicate affected parties could be eligible for up to £5,000 compensation if the claim is successful. Your lawyers operate on a no-win-no-free basis and have invited those affected to join the group action claim on their website. On the Your Lawyers website, they say a GLO will normally result in the court establishing a final cut-off date for people to join the action or victims face missing out on potentially thousands of pounds of compensation. Early estimates have put the possible payouts at up to £5,000 in the action, an award that's not to be missed out on. While Amon Johal, director of your lawyers, said our group action claim against Virgin Media is now live and I encourage anyone affected to sign up for representation now. Unbelievably, Virgin Media failed to take necessary steps to keep people's data safe for a sustained period of time and shockingly, it took a third-party security research to identify the result. We know from experience that when personal data is exposed online, it leaves victims vulnerable for cyber attacks and attempts at fraud, such as phishing scams. Customers will no doubt have bought into the Virgin Media brand that's been nurtured by Richard Branson for years and will rightly expect their personal data to be properly protected. For this to have happened is an inexcusable breach of consumer rights. Your lawyers will hold Virgin Media to account for this avoidable action in breach of private information, and we will do everything possible to ensure justice for the victims prevails. The door is open for victims to join the action, and now is the time to act. We approached Virgin Media for a statement, but they declined to give us a statement at the present time. We will, of course, keep a close eye on how this legal action progresses, and bring you further updates in future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. Back in episode 105 of the GDPR Weekly Show, we brought you news of a data breach at Carnival Cruise Lines. And this week, Carnival have issued an update on that data breach. They say that as earlier disclosed, Carnival detected unauthorised third-party access to portions of the company's information technology systems on August 15, 2020. Information security at Carnival Corporation acted quickly to shut down the intrusion, restore operations and prevent further unauthorised access. The company also engaged a major cybersecurity firm to investigate the matter and notified all of the appropriate regulators and law enforcement of the event. 
While the investigations ongoing, early indications are that in early August, the unauthorised third party gained access to certain personal information relating to some guests, employees and crew for three of the corporation's brands, Carnival Cruise Line, Holland America Line and Seabourne, as well as Carnival's casino operation. Working with its cybersecurity consultants, the company took steps to recover its files and has evidence indicating a low likelihood that the data has been misused. The company is working as quickly as possible to identify the guests, employees, crew and other individuals whose personal information may have been impacted. The company expects to complete this process within the next 30 to 60 days and will then send notifications to potentially affected individuals whose current contact information is available to the company. Along with those individual notices, affected individuals will be offered complimentary credit monitoring as appropriate. Meanwhile, the company has posted website notices and established a dedicated call centre to answer questions regarding the event. When the investigation is complete, callers may confirm whether or not their information was affected. Additional information about the event is available at www.hollandamerica.com, www.carnival.com, www.seaborn.com, that's S-E-A-B-O-U-R-N.com, or www.oceanplayersclub.com. The call centre is available toll-free in the US at 888-905-0687, from 9am to 9pm Eastern Time, Monday to Friday. Individuals outside the US may email questions to event at cyberscout at c-y-b-e-r-s-c-o-u-t dot com as well as a request that the tool centre representative respond back by phone. As part of its ongoing operations, Carnival is continuing to review security and privacy policies and procedures and implementing changes when needed to enhance its information security and privacy controls. When we receive any further update from Carnival, we will, of course, bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. 365 days of reliable and objective news. In another ongoing investigation, Helen Dixon, the head of Ireland's State of Protection Commission, has announced that it's going to be into the new year before the Data Protection Commission issues a final ruling on Twitter's handling of a data breach which was disclosed in January 2019. Speaking at the Wall Street Journal's virtual CIO network conference, Ms. Dixon said, It's a long process. We're in a long chain that may not end by the end of the year. Twitter declined to comment. In January 2019, Twitter said it had fixed the security glitch that had exposed users' private tweets over a period of more than four years. In May of this year, Ms. Dixon, on behalf of Ireland's Data Protection Commission, submitted a draft decision to more than two dozen of the EU's privacy regulators for review, as required under the law. Eleven regulators objected to the proposed ruling, sparking a lengthy dispute resolution process. The contents of the draft decision have never been disclosed. The Irish DPC would not identify which regulators had objected to the decision, or say whether their complaints were over the substance of the ruling or the size of the penalty. Delays in enforcing the sweeping privacy law have led to complaints that its scope is too broad. Nearly 24 US technology companies are being investigated under the law, including Facebook and Alphabet, which of course is the owner of Google. So we will wait into the new year for an update on this from the Irish Data Protection Commission, and as soon as we receive one, we will of course bring it to you in the next episode of our show. 
Hackney Council in London has reported a data breach after being hit by what it described as a serious cyber attack on Tuesday morning this week, which is still affecting many of its services and IT systems. Hackney Council says it's working with the UK's National Cyber Security Centre, NCSC, and the Ministry of Housing to investigate and understand the impact of the incident. It is not yet clear what type of cyber attack has hit Hackney Council. However, the ICO has confirmed that it's received a report of a data breach. In a statement on the Council's website, which is still up and running, Mayor Philip Glanville said, Our focus is on continuing to deliver essential frontline services, especially to our most vulnerable residents, and protecting data while restoring affected systems as soon as possible. In the meantime, some Council services may be unavailable or slower than normal, and our call centre is extremely busy. We ask that residents and businesses only contact us if absolutely necessary and to bear with us while we seek to resolve these issues. For the ICO, a spokesman said, people should be able to expect that their personal information is handled securely by any organisation when it isn't, this can cause real distress, especially if it is sensitive information. It's obviously very early days in this investigation, so we will expect to receive an update either from Hackney Council or the ICO at some point. And as soon as we do, we will bring it to you in the next web episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Help! I love this show, but I've got GDPR questions and don't know what to do. It's simple. Just follow the instructions coming up and the guys at GDPR Weekly Show will help within 24 hours. All you need to do is email helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com with the details of your GDPR issue and one of our specialists will get straight back to you. Thanks, Mike. A solicitor has warned that Flintshire Council in Scotland could face legal action after a data breach, which saw the personal details of dozens of residents published online. The solicitor, Robert Godfrey, said he'd been contacted by a number of people impacted after the private information respondents to Flintshire Council's local development plan was published online in July this year. The blueprint sets out locations where up to 7,000 new homes could be built in the county over the next decade and attracted feedback from hundreds of individuals concerned about the potential strain on local services. When the comments were made public on the authorities' website, it was soon discovered that personal details of some, including their names and contact information, could also be accessed. Since then, they claim to have been contacted and harassed on social media. Flintshire Council has apologised to the 66 people affected and referred the incident to the Information Commissioner's Office. While Flintshire Council said that the ICO has not chosen to pursue the matter further, Mr Godfrey said he believed anyone impacted by the serious breach could have a valid claim for damages. Mr Godfrey, the head of professional negligence at national law firm Simpson Miller, said, We have had residents contact us who are quite rightly very concerned. We are actively working on potential claims on behalf of people directly affected by this serious breach. This is a clear breach of GDPR and data protection. The council, by their own admission, were using poor security features to protect confidential information. I'm confident any person whose details have been accessed could have a valid claim. He went on to say, Some of those affected have had their information published online and been unfairly harassed as a consequence. Many will be anxious and fear they will be targeted at home or work in the future. He encouraged any residents impacted to seek urgent legal advice. For its part, Flintshire Council has admitted the private details of some people who responded to the consultation were available on a document on its website for three hours. Despite the data being hidden from view when it was created, officials acknowledged that they could have been uncovered with their conscious effort. Members of pressure group Keep Ulo Green were amongst those who said their data was accessed and described the breach as incredibly distressing. 
A senior Chancellor official has now stressed the authorities out with the issue in a proactive and transparent manner and urged anyone with outstanding concerns to contact the Council directly. Gareth Owens, Chief Governance Officer, said there was a short window of three hours at the end of July when the names and addresses of 66 respondents to the Local Development Plan consultation could be unredacted by someone who was minded to do so. The Council quickly removed the consultation responses and ensured the redaction could no longer be undone. It also contacted all respondents to inform them whether they were within the 66 who had their data exposed and issued an apology to those who were. The council reported the incident to the Information Commissioner's Office. The ICO has already decided, in light of the swift directive action, the small number of people affected and the low sensitivity of the data that could be uncovered not to take any further action against the council. He added, the number of inquiries received by the council was limited given the proactive and transparent manner in the way it was addressed. Should anyone remain concerned, then they are encouraged to contact the Council to discuss the incident. Flinchy's local development plan is due to be submitted to the Planning Inspectorate by the end of this month, with a public examination set to take place early next year. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. To Morton now, where an application has been filed before the civil courts against Sea Planet IT Solutions Limited for breaching data protection laws after a leak of some names, addresses, and ID card details of more than 330,000 Maltese citizens, which was revealed in April. The application is signed by 620 claimants following an initiative by the Daphne Caruna Delizia Foundation and NGO Republica. The application requests the court to quantify and award the damages that the claimants have suffered as a result of the breach of their personal data in accordance with the provisions of the Regulation 2018-679 GDPR. The leak, which contained details of more than 330,000 Maltese citizens, represented some 75% of the population of Malta. The company in question is owned by Philip Ferrugier, a former production director at the Labour Party Media, one production. He's also the brother-in-law of Parliamentary Secretary for the EU Funds, Stefan Zorinzo Azapardi. Beside basic information, the data which was leaked also held a section identifying the individuals as either Labour or Nationalist voters. The monitoring service that revealed the leak said the data was available for everyone to access without any need for password or identification. Following the revelations of the huge data breach, the company brushed off the seriousness of the leak as a mishap. It also said it would not be replying to any questions on the issue because the information in question was old. Lawyers Antonio Dio, Carl Gresh, Dio Fauzon, Sarah Tanataki and Michael Zamet Mamel signed the application. This is the first case of its type in Malta and so when we receive an update either from the claimants, the defendants or indeed the court in Malta, we will of course bring it to you in the GDPR Weekly Show. Back to UK now and the Communication Workers Union, the CWU, has appointed Kauna Lechner UK as their data breach claim support lawyers to support the nearly 200,000 members of the CWU. The CWU is the largest union for the communications industry in the UK, representing workers from the postal, telecoms, mobile, administration and financial sectors. Kingsley Hayes is well known to us here at the GDPR Weekly Show. The head of data breach at Town Electna commented, We are delighted to be appointed as sole legal data breach advisor to members of the Communication Workers Union, the organisation has a long history of campaigning to raise the voice and protect the rights of its members. There is a strong synergy in our core values and clear commitment to standing firm on individuals' rights. We will be working closely with the CWU legal team to represent members when their data protection rights have been violated. 
Data breaches can occur either following a malicious cyber attack or simply through human error. Regardless of how it happened, a breach in the confidentiality of personal information can be devastating for victims. We support clients to secure the compensation that is rightly theirs. We carefully consider individual circumstances and review the full impact, which may include psychological distress. Tony Rupert, Head of Legal Services at Communication Workers Union CWU, said we are passionate about protecting and promoting the interests of our membership. We recognise that data breaches are a risk that many of our members may be subjected to and sought to add to the union's wide range of legal services. Wash your hands, keep your social distance, wear your mask, stay safe. An important court ruling out of Germany this week in the field of GDPR. Many times when there's a claim against a company or an organisation because it's had a data breach and we've seen in earlier examples in this very episode of the GDPR show of class actions being launched against companies and organisations. The difficulty is is that where the damages claimed for are not physical but maybe a claim for distress or other mental issues it's very hard to actually put a value on that distress. And we've seen, again, in this episode of the GDPR Weekly Show, where in the case against Virgin Media, the lawyers are fairly confident of securing £5,000 for each of their applicants who've taken part in the legal claim. So it's that very issue that's been addressed recently by a court in Germany. And in its decision of the 18th of September, case number 2 0100-20, the regional court in Frankfurt and Maine had to decide on a civil action brought by an individual against the Belgian subsidiary of an international credit card company. The claimant participated in a credit card-related bonus programme run by the defendant. The defendant engaged the processor established in Austria for the technical operation of the bonus programme and the process of the participant's personal data. During a hacking attack on the processor systems, unknown perpetrators accessed the data of approximately 90,000 participants of the credit card bonus program and made this data publicly available on the internet, including the claimant's credit card number, but crucially not the expiration date or the CVC codes, the three numbers on the back of the chart. Apparently, the attackers exploited a weakness in the processor's IT system to access the network and access the data. The defendant informed all affected data subjects about the data leak and warned about potential misuse of the data. Although the platform was subsequently shut down, the website for the bonus program, including the login area, was accessible again for one day following an IT check. The claimant claimed both injunctive relief requiring the defendant to immediately refrain from processing or publishing his personal data and a compensation claim for damages against the defendant for breaches of GDPR. So that's the background. The actual decision was that the district court dismissed both claims. In its opinion, the claimant was neither entitled to injunctive relief nor to damages. Dismissing the claim for injunctive relief under sections 1004-1823-1 of the German Civil Code, the district court found that on the facts there was no risk of a repeat breach as the service provider was no longer responsible for administration of the programme and as the bonus programme had ended. The court also rejected the claimant's claim for €8,400 in damages for non-material damage under Article 82.1 of GDPR for the following reasons, and this is the point which I think is really interesting in terms of damages for distress. So the court found that the publication of the claimant's personal data by the attackers after the hack did not give rise to damage claims under Article 82.1 as the publication was not by the controller defendant or by one of the controller's processors. 
The claimant also failed to prove that the controller had failed to comply with its obligation under Article 28.1 at GDPR to diligently select and monitor the service provider appointed to administer the bonus programme. The court stated in general that the burden of proof of an infringement of GDPR is with the claimant data subject. Article 82.3 GDPR only shifts the burden of proof to the controller or processor with respect to the controller or processor's responsibility for a GDPR infringement once the infringement has been proven by the data subject. The hacking, change of the admin password and the fact the website for the bonus program, including the login area, was accessible again for one day for an IT check did not give rise to non-material damage claims as an infringement of GDPR does not automatically result in non-material damages but requires a concrete violation of the affected data subject's right to privacy. In particular, German law and therefore Article 82 of GDPR as applied by German courts does not provide for overcompensating punitive damages. I think if you contrast that back to the case that we mentioned earlier in this episode about where the details of respondents to the local plan had had their personal details leaked, but they actually feared for their safety because of that, then I think that perhaps indicates a very real difference in terms of the non-material damage. The court also found that the plaintiff could not claim damages for a missing data processing agreement in terms of Article 28.3 of GDPR between the defendant and its processor as on the facts there was an agreement in place. A data processing agreement does not require a wet signature, an electronic signature is sufficient. Further, neither Article 32 nor the Payment Card Industry Data Security Standard, PCCDSS, require that credit card numbers are stored as hashes. Not hashing the credit card numbers consequently does not qualify as an infringement of GDPR in terms of Article 82.1. Non-material damages are also not caused by an alleged inadmissible disclosure of personal data by the defendant to its parent company in the United States acting as joint controller with the defendant as the plaintiff could not establish such data transfers that occurred. The court stressed that it is possible to act as joint controller without having access to any personal data as joint determination of the purposes and means of processing is sufficient. A missing joint controller arrangement or an omission to make its essence available to the data subject is also not suitable to cause any non-material damage. Finally, the court found that the approved binding corporate rules, BCR, were in place between the defendant and its parent company. Damage claims under German general tort are blocked by Article 82.1 of GDPR. The court could also not identify any breach of contract. As such, the claimant was unable to prove liability on any of the various bases argued. And so, as I said earlier in this article, I think this decision could have real ramifications right across the rest of the EU in terms of non-material damages. What's up, Mike? I'm fed up. I wish I had a new job. Have you tried Jubal? Jubal Jubal.org. We help people find jobs. Great. I'll try it now. Here in the UK, the ICO has published for consultation its draft statutory guidance setting out how it will regulate and enforce data protection legislation in the UK. The document explains all of the key powers of the ICO, including information notices, assessment notices, enforcement notices and penalty notices. But perhaps most interestingly, it also sets out for the first time the ICO's approach to how it calculates penalties under GDPR, giving organisations a better sense of the level of fine to which they could be subject for GDPR non-compliance. However, although the ICOs provide a table setting out its starting point for the calculation, there is nonetheless a large amount of discretion that the regulators can apply, meaning it's not all as transparent as it may at first seem. Although the penalty calculator is only in draft form at this stage, it's the first time the process adopted by the ICO has been made public. 
The draft guidance sets out nine steps which will factor into the calculation of a penalty for non-compliance with GDPR, including seriousness, culpability, aggravating and mitigating factors, economic impact and dissuasiveness. These steps will be applied to all GDPR fines regardless of whether the so-called standard maximum amount or higher maximum amount applies. As per GDPR, the higher maximum amount is €20 million Euros or 4% of annual t- worldwide turnover, whichever is greater. The standard maximum amount is €10 million Euros or 2% of annual worldwide turnover, whichever is greater. The following three steps will be considered initially in order to enable the ICO to identify its starting point. So the first thing it's going to consider is the seriousness of the breach. The factors to consider when assessing seriousness of any infringement reflect those set out in GDPR, including the nature, gravity and duration of the failure, any action taken by the data controller or processor to mitigate the damage suffered by data subjects, the degree to which the data controller and data processor cooperate with the ICO, and the way the breach became known to the ICO, including whether it was the data controller or processor who first notified the ICO of the failure. They will then look at culpability, and when assessing culpability, the ICO will take into account the intentional or negligent character of the failure, specifically whether the organisation was intentional or negligent about its responsibility for the breach. It will then look at turnover. The ICO will review relevant accounts and obtain expert financial or accountancy advice if required to determine the amount of turnover or equivalent for non-profit organisations such as the annual revenue budget for a local authority and the financial means of the authority and of the relevant individuals. In circumstances where turnover or equivalent is minimal, the ICO will give greater weight to other factors such as dissuasiveness, particularly if it's a serious breach. Where there's a lack of cooperation in providing your relevant financial information, the panel will rely on the information available or otherwise give greater weight to factors such as aggravating features. The ICO will consider any aggravating and mitigating factors applicable to the circumstances of the case, such as any financial benefit gained by the data controller or data processor, or any losses avoided directly or indirectly from the breach. When determining the amount of any proposed penalty, the ICO will then adjust the starting point figure for each band accordingly, upwards or downwards, to reflect its assessment of applicable aggravating or mitigating circumstances. It will clearly record which aggravating and mitigating features it has taken into account and why and how it considers that these influence a proposed administrative penalty. And I suppose a good example there would be the very story which we had earlier in this week's episode of the show about British Airways and the penalty being reduced down from £183 million pounds to 20 million pounds because of the mitigating factors of the ongoing distress to the travel industry caused by the worldwide COVID-19 pandemic. The ICO will also look at financial means and consider the likelihood of the organisation or the individual being able to pay the proposed penalty and whether it may cause undue financial hardship. They'll also look at the economic impact and where appropriate, consider any economic impact on the wider sector or, re- or related regulatory impact of the proposed penalty beyond the organisation or individuals it's actually serving the penalty on. It then needs to look at effectiveness, proportionality and dissuasiveness. The ICO will ensure that the amount of fine proposed is effective, proportionate and dissuasive and will adjust it accordingly. And then interestingly, and this is a new feature, the ICO is going to offer an early payment discount of 20% of the penalty if it receives full payment of the penalty within 28 calendar days of it sending the final penalty notice. However, perhaps in a move to dissuade people from mounting pointless appeals, 
if you receive a penalty notice and you appeal to the first tier tribunal, then you will forsake your early payment discount. And doubtless that will make some people who perhaps might think, oh, well, I'll appeal that, actually decide that they're better off accepting the 20% discount and paying the penalty. The ICO has not indicated when it will be issuing the results of this consultation, but any updates we do receive, we will, of course, bring them to you in future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. A common theme in requests to our help desk has been from IT contractors who are not quite sure what they need to do regarding GDPR when they're employed by a company as a freelancer. Obviously, they're aware of what they need to do in terms of their own GDPR, in terms of the data they look after as a business in their own right. But what do they do about data that they receive from a client that they're working on? And so we've put together this article just to give some guidance, really. As always, we'd always say check with us at our help desk for specific advice. And to do that, as always, you can always email us at helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com. But we thought we'd give you some general guidance. The first thing we'd say is that as a freelancer or contractor, when you engage with any client in any setting, explicitly ask them what their data protection compliance is. Ask them for their privacy policy. Ask them for their other GDPR policy. Ask them do they consider themselves to be a data controller or data processor. And equally, on the time that you're working for them on their data, how do they see you? Do they see you as a joint data controller? Do they see you as a data processor? Have they not really thought about it at all? They do need to see you as one or the other, either a data controller, data processor, or joint data controller. So do try and get out of them how they see you. Any legitimate organisation carrying out data processing in a proper way and following their obligations should be both able and willing to provide you with information about their data policies. Any hesitancy or difficulty presented when asking about them should be seen as a red flag. In addition, contractors should ask for an example of the steps the end user has taken to ensure GDPR compliance, the identity and details of the data protection team and officers they might have in place, copies of their privacy policies, and evidence that any data which the freelancer or or contractor is being provided with as part of the contract or work required has been obtained properly and can legally be used. Depending on the size of the company or the amount of data being collected and used, the end user may also have IT security policies that can be outlined and provided to the contractor or freelancer. This is especially important if your role of assignment involves specific data and software programming. Companies highly involved in data should be able to explain their security practices which might involve the pseudonymization or encryption of data and be able to explain what their processes are for regularly testing and evaluating their security measures. However, even if a company is not mainly involved in processing data, they should still be able to explain what security measures they have in place to ensure that any data that they have collected is protected. Another good thing to do, of course, is to look at the company's website and see, does it have a cookie policy? Does it have a privacy policy? Does it have everything you'd expect in a, in a modern GDPR-compliant website? Also be clear, though, that you make sure in your contract or engagement that it clearly defines the roles of both parties and what their level of responsibility will be. Stating that both parties warrant they are treating data properly and remain responsible for the data they use and process is imperative, although of course some responsibilities under data protection rules cannot be avoided. If the relationship and services to be performed will involve a considerable amount of data, it's highly recommended to enter into a data processing agreement as well as their main contract. 
that data processing agreement was set out in a higher level of detail the treatment expected of data and not only this but the data but the data processing agreement would also clearly demonstrate to data authorities that the contractor actively thought about what was being shared between parties and how it could do all in its power to ensure this was done properly. Finally, if you've done all that, but there remain concerns from you, then the contractor should quite simply not process any data. Crucially, it should be borne in mind that a data protection authority, the ICO in the case of the UK, should not hold the contractor responsible for GDPR violations where the contractor has followed all of their obligations and were not aware of any internal practices which may be illegal. However, this does not mean that as a contractor or freelancer you can simply turn a blind eye to your client's data protection practices in the hope they can avoid any responsibility for them. There is a responsibility for all data processors to ensure that the parties they engage also handle data properly, so it's imperative for freelancers to be as thorough as possible and document all their findings. If something doesn't seem right, ask about it and document your investigations. Lastly, of course, be aware that data processing relationships can be very convoluted and a large company or client could mean a difficult bargaining process for you as a contractor, which could become more confusing and frustrating depending on the departments involved. This is why we do always recommend getting specialist advice, for example, from our help desk, to ensure that you are on the right side of compliance and that all the proper steps have been taken to follow your GDPR obligation. So a quick run through there, but I hope that if you are a contractor or freelancer, you find that helpful. I love this show, but I've got GDPR questions and don't know what to do. It's simple. Just follow the instructions coming up and the guys at GDPR Weekly Show will help within 24 hours. All you need to do is email helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com with the details of your GDPR issue and one of our specialists will get straight back to you. Bye kids. Thanks Mike. And finally this week we look at results of a survey by Exenar. Exenar looked into the fines and penalties applied to GDPR across Europe to look for any common patterns and what they found was that 39% of GDPR related fines were due to insufficient security and examples they cite include British Airways, Active Assurances and DSK Bank. Close behind were penalties imposed because of unsecured and over-retained data. And the examples that they give in this case are Marriott, Deutsche Vernon and One-on-One Telecom. Other notable problems include the unlawful use of personally identifiable information and failure to comply with data subject access requests, which are responsible for 19% of the penalties, and the remaining 16% of penalties came down to a range of issues, including Uber's failure to report a data breach fast enough, Unicredit's incorrect sharing of data, and H&M's unlawful use of employee data. Almost all of these cases, of course, we've brought to you in previous episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. Commenting on the survey, Danny Reeves, XNR CEO, said nearly 65% of GDPR fines were caused by insufficient security and storing unsecured data. Securing your data first can play a vital role in not only meeting GDPR standards, but also help mitigate the risk of the insufficient security, as it would be harder for hackers to access any data in the event of a breach. Thank you very much for listening to the show. Now stay safe, take care and wash your hands. The GDPR Weekly Show is an insurability production. Follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash insurity. Until next time, bye-bye.